Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey, everyone, this is Mark Treichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. I'm back again with Joe Goldberg. Joe, you ready for part two? Absolutely, Mark. All right. Well, Joe, uh, I'll keep your intro, your bio a little bit shorter. Joe's been an attorney for 40 years. He's now consulting and doing a few other things. He spent eight years at NCUA, and he's a consumer compliance guru of sorts. And we are going to jump back into ECOA, Regby and a few remaining topics on this that we didn't cover in part one. Joe, the microphone is yours. All right. Thank you very much, Mark. And in the first part of this, we talked about the background of ACOA, and then we went through what I characterize as one of the two primary purposes of the law, which is to prevent discrimination. So now we're going to look at the second primary purpose, which is uh, to encourage the informed use of credit, which is a stated purpose that Congress put right in the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And the way that it did that is that it required a creditor to provide a notice to an applicant who was either denied credit or received credit on terms that were not as favorable as the terms that the person applied for. Many of you may be familiar with the term adverse action notice. And that's what this, this notice is. It's the notice that adverse action was taken uh, on the application. So let's take a look at what, what is done either through the act itself or through regulation B. So the, the purpose of this is to inform an applicant of the reasons for the adverse action. Why was the credit denied? Why was it revoked? Why was it provided? And so the, the revocation would be existing credit or was existing credit adversely changed or was the credit applied for originally approved, but approved with less favorable terms than those requested. So it's the why. Well, here's, what, here's why we didn't want you, you to be our customer. The adverse action notices must provide specific reasons in some level of detail for example, you cannot just say applicant does not meet our lending standards. It's just not sufficient. First of all, a, a borrower is not going to know what your lending standards are. And which one is it that they didn't meet? It, it just simply isn't informing the applicant of the reasons for the adverse action. So, uh, so uh, Joe, if they have a debt to income ratio of X percent, and you were at X plus 5%, you could say that your obligations and debt ratio is, that would be, would that be something that would be specific enough to meet this? Right. That would be specific. There, there's not a need to put the exact numbers that you're looking, that the credit union looks for, what the persons were, just the fact that the debt to income ratio, however you want to term it, was too great to, to, for the credit union to provide the credit. Got it. All right. Now, th this is all the way the regulation approaches 
the adverse action notice. It does say that the notice should contain the principal reasons for the adverse action. And the reason that it discusses this is there's a problem with not providing enough information, but there's also a problem with providing too much information. What the official interpretation of regula Regulation B states is that while a specific number of reasons is not mandated, more than four reasons is probably not helpful. And the reason is because if somebody has a significant number of problems, it's probably going to be hard for them to deal with all of them, but it would be much more beneficial for those people to know that the three or four most significant problems with your credit are A, B, C, and D. That then gives that borrower or applicant the ability to start to address the credit deficiencies. And That's, it makes yeah, sense I because I didn't, yeah, that I, I learned that today that uh, I was today years old understanding that, but that makes sense that you don't want to pile on. You don't want to say, here's the 47 reasons, what were the main reasons? And then they can look towards resolving those. Exactly. If, if, you know, if the main reason is your income's too low, or if your debts are too high, those, whether, whether the person can actually address those is debatable. But the fact is for, for most people, that's going to be the type of problem that if it was alleviated, would get them into consideration for some type of credit, maybe not, maybe under different terms, but so yeah, you want to be able to, uh, as an applicant, know what are the few things I can do to try and better my credit. And again, for some people, it may be beyond repair, unfortunately, but for the great number of people, it's not. And if they know what they can, they have to address, they can take some steps to, to address that. So now there's, there's some wrinkles to this. For example, if the credit union says, we can't give you this loan on these terms. However, we can give you this car loan at X plus 2% interest rate instead of what you asked for. If the person accepts the counteroffer, th then then they're okay. There, there is no need for adverse action because the credit has been consummated. Also, if there's an automatic denial based on one factor in an AUS, automated, automated underwriting system, you don't have to. It, it also permits the creditor for to provide only one notice where the Fair Credit Reporting Act also requires an adverse action notice. Again, some of you may be familiar with the fact that if a credit report or a consumer, consumer report is a proper terminology, is used in considering whether to extend the credit, the Fair Credit Reporting Act also has an adverse action notice requirement so that if the credit is denied or the terms are less favorable than applied for and a credit report was used in that, that determination, there has to be an adverse ad action notice under the FCRA. Interesting. The, the ECOA, Reg B, the CFPB said a few years ago, and then I say a few, it may have been six, seven, eight years ago, that the use of a single notice for both will satisfy ECOA. 
So, and there, I believe that there's even a form, a sample form in the official interpretation of the regulation. Makes if, if I, am I right, excuse me, that, that the applicant can, has a way to say, Hey, if, if, if you're going to give me an adverse action, I'd rather get it in hard copy or electronically are, am I right about that? And then are, is the institution required to do both? The institution can actually give an oral notice, but you won't find that very often because the what you have to say orally is pretty much what you would have to put in a written notice. And it's a little bit complicated to have somebody sit down there and, and you know sit and read this orally to a consumer. So the answer is yes. And in fact, the person doesn't have to provide the notice, but has to say that the notice is available. Excuse me, the creditor doesn't have to, creditor can say the notice is available and then the person can ask for it. But it really doesn't make sense for a creditor to try and give the reasons orally. Sure. You run a real risk for compliance purposes. <laughs> yeah, yes. Consistency would be hard to maintain. And, and then it also could get, you know, into a debate and you could end up having conversations you wouldn't even want to contemplate having. Exactly. Exactly. And then the last thing I do want to say is that there's also a requirement for something similar for business applicants. The standards are different. I don't want to go into them, but they're, they're pretty easy to read in the regulation. I don't think we need to go into them at this time. Got it. All right. Now, eco, I, you know, we talked about the two significant provisions but there are some other provisions of ACOA that everybody should know about. And one I did mention a little bit earlier, and that is a special purpose credit program. And this is a carve out that allows creditors to meet the credit needs of specified classes of persons. And these are for programs for those who are economically or socially disadvantaged, either consumers or commercial enterprises. There are rules that govern these. There actually is sort of one set of rules for for-profit financial institutions and then another set for nonprofits. It, they they allow this type of credit to be extended and there, there, there has to be, it ha, it's one of two things. It's a credit assistance program that's expressly authorized by federal or state law for the benefit of an economically disadvantaged class of persons or a credit assistance program offered by a not-for-profit organization for the benefit of its members or an economically disadvantaged class of persons. Credit unions fall under the not-for-profit organization prong. So, you know, there is consideration of the membership and the credit union can target a portion of its membership if it is specifically an economically disadvantaged class of persons. Again, if you're interested in looking at this, I know that I believe in 2022, NCUA sent a letter to, to credit unions describing the availability of these programs to credit unions and encouraging some to look at, at the possibility of implementing some of these programs if it was appropriate for their membership. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I'll have to take a look at that letter. I'm not familiar with that if that's out there. It went out, I believe it went out at the same, it may have been something other than a letter, a formal letter to credit unions, but I know that whatever was sent out was done around the same time as banks put out something similar. You know, banks got it. Yeah, it probably, so. 
it probably was a letter to credit unions. That would be the natural way to do that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we talked in the first part of this presentation about the referring of credit unions to the Department of Justice for violations of ECOA. There is a provision right in ECOA. It's section 1691E, and then in parentheses, it's subsection G, that requires a financial regulator, federal financial regulator, to refer to the Department of Justice institutions under its supervision when there is a reason to believe that the institution has engaged in a pattern or practice of illegal discrimination. And I mentioned in this, the first part of this presentation that NCUA has done so for age violations, age or violations for discrimination based on the prohibited basis of age and also on the prohibited basis of marital status. At least during the time I was there, the Department of Justice returned all of the referrals, mostly because they felt that the NCUA as an agency had properly handled the matters internally, and there was no need for the DOJ to be involved and to file an action. In 1996, DOJ issued guidance to the federal banking regulators, and I use that term in its broad sense because it included NCUA, uh, the title of it is Identifying Lender Practices That May Form the Basis of a Pattern or Practice for Referrals to the Department of Justice. It's publicly available. It's still in, it's still in play. DOJ considers it to be still an active guidance, if you will. NCUA uses it. It's available to the to the credit unions. It might be on NCU's website, NCUA's website. I'm not positive. I'll talk about that in a minute where things are, but I know that DOJ has it publicly available. Got it's it. actually fairly interesting reading because it does give you some guidance on uh, how to avoid being caught up in a problem with a COA that results in a referral. Excellent. All right. So and I, I did note that NCOA has done that and it's now become a regular thing. Unfortunately, there are a number of credit unions who just can't seem to get this either age discrimination or marital status issue fixed. So some and, of the other, as you said, as you said, the word is required. If NCOA comes across a fact pattern that fits, they have to refer it to the DOJ. It's not, it's not a, there's not an art to that determination. If the facts are the, the facts are the facts, and if there is a discrimination, it must go to DOJ. And and then NCUA can tell the credit union to fix it, or the credit union can respond and fix it. And it's those kind of things that DOJ weighs once it's referred to them. Right. And generally, I can tell you my experience was we would have conversations with man, credit union management and explain the standards that are in that DOJ publication, which includes such things as restitution having been made, the problem already being corrected. And, you know, we would point out that abiding by those provisions in that DOJ guidance would go a long way to the DOJ not keeping referrals. 
And it's, it's, it just makes sense that you'd want to take care of your members anyway, if there was any issue that, you, you know, that similar to similar to showing remorse at sentencing. To some extent, <laughs> to some extent, yeah, yeah. If 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 it's if it's sincere, it would absolutely <laughs> no. If it's it. sincere, yeah, yeah, I wasn't. I I was just trying to put it into you know I, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm putting it into the real world ramifications and and analogies yeah. that I can think of. But anyway, all right. And and in in defense of all the credit unions we dealt with, to a credit union, each one said, you know. We had no idea. This is not right. We shouldn't. We don't want to do this to our members. How do we make it right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, and and yeah. it's easy. I mean, you have something. We've always done it this way, right? It's been in there for five years or ten years, and then when you NCUA goes in and raises the question, and you look at it through a different lens, you can go, "Oh my gosh, I didn't realize it. How do I fix it?" Oh yeah, now, there were there were definitely credit unions where there was nobody left in the credit union who knew when that practice had been implemented. So <laughs> get yeah. that, yeah. All right. So some of the other requirements of a COA that haven't yet been covered is that it does require a creditor to provide a written copy of an appraisal or offer the appraisal that was used in a credit decision and at no cost for the copy to the applicant. Just it's a requirement. There are also incentives, and this kind of dovetails into what we just talked about with the DOJ referrals to, to some extent. There are incentives built into the ECOA for self-testing and self-correction. It can eliminate a finding of a violation uh, if a credit union on its own self-tests, and that could be either internal or the use of a, a, you know, a third party doing some type of external audit and to, as a means of testing and self-correction. Um, and I know that there have been some credit unions who self-reported to NCUA when I was there saying, hey, we found this, we've corrected it, what do we do? And under ACOA, it would not have been a problem because as long as the standards were met for self-correction and self-testing. So that's, again, that's an incentive to the credit industry as a whole to do things right and to get things right. There is a brand new um, section of ACOA that essentially, let's see, the effective date is going to be April, excuse me, August 29th of 2023. Although the compliance date is well after that, there is a separate podcast that goes into detail on it, but it refers, or excuse me, it requires those who lend to small businesses to collect data similar to Humda data and beyond that for every application and report that data to the CFPB um, as long as you, the creditor meets the threshold of, the threshold is at least 100 originations to small businesses for each of the prior two years. That would require report, collection reporting in the third year. Very Enjoy. detailed. Joe, let me interrupt there for one second. The that podcast is podcast number one eleven, which is which is published and was published on June thirteenth. So, all right, if you that'll this the one we're recording today will come after June thirteenth. So, if you're listening to it and you want to hear the podcast Joe is referring to on the small business loan data collection, it's number one eleven, published on June thirteenth. Right, good. Thank you for that, Mark. Great. Um, enforcement, 
For federal credit unions, the NCUA is the enforcing agency for ACOA. For federally insured state credit unions and for non-federally insured state charters, the Federal Trade Commission is the enforcement agency. Now, the act also includes provisions for private actions against a creditor who violates ECOA. Uh, they, the act allows for the recovery of actual damages for punitive damages up to $10,000 for a case involving an individual. Class actions are not prohibited. And in fact, there is a provision under the punitive damages section that governs how much the punitive damages can be. And just so you know, it's the lesser of $500,000 or 1% of the net worth of the actor if there's a, a punitive damages in a class action. For class actions, if there are actual damages, there's not a limit to the actual damages. And also there can be injunctive relief and an award of attorney's fees and costs. Joe, on, on class actions, um, you know, just this is just kind of a something that jumped into my head and not related to this particular topic, but like a class action lawsuit for... Um, you know, your your cable company overcharged you a dollar for something over 10 years and you, you get a notification that you had service by this cable company and, you know, you can, you can opt in as part of the class action. And then two years later, you get a check for $4.76. And, but the law firm got a big settlement, right? Um, any thought... And I know that what what's being protected under these laws here and the ability to have these class action lawsuits make sense because because of the the if there's an intent to do something very bad against people that that kind of protects that from happening. But are can you think of examples? And I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but you know the the example of where I got a check for four dollars and twelve cents. To, to me, seems to be almost an inappropriate use of class action lawsuits. Can you, in your history of of what you've seen out there in this arena, can you think of some class action lawsuits that that um, that that were were worthy and actually ended up getting a reasonable settlement for for people? Yeah, there are, and not are. just, the, I'm, and yeah, not yeah, just I, the attorneys. Yeah, I'm, you know, I can't. I can't come up with one offhand, but I was involved in several class actions in my private practice. And this, what you're raising is an argument that sort of has been there historically. You know, the, the, the issue is, is it okay to steal a million dollars from one person? Or it's, or it's not okay, obviously, to steal a million dollars right, right, from one person. Right. What's it, the materiality? It's okay, to, it's okay to steal $10 million you know, from 50 million people because you, if you get, file a class action, everybody only gets 50 cents. But, you know, if you don't have the class action process, then the the business that acts illegally gets to keep the profits right, from the right, illegal right. activity. I, I, I guess it's, it's, it, it's like having a referee or an umpire, right? You got to have someone there to call balls and strikes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, people complain about the attorney's fees, which may or, you know, I'm, sometimes they're exorbitant, sometimes they're not. 
but that that sort of also fits into the whole concept of if there's no penalty for the the actor the bad acting actors, illegally right. you know yep. look when i it, there are some class actions that are questionable whether there is a violation and they get settled because it's cheaper to settle you know i understand that but there there are great many who uh, of class actions that have a lot of value and you know it stops illegal activity and it does um it it the profits are not, they don't stay with the, the bank robber. You know, they, they go back to somewhere. At least they don't get to keep the fruits of their illegal activity. Perfect. So, perfect explanation. Yeah. I pre, I'm glad yeah. I asked the question. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a, yeah, it's not a perfect system in, in, you know, but it's what we have. And to be honest, you know, those, a lot of those types of class actions are things that a regulator could handle if the regulator had 10 times as many people working in the field, of course, right, nobody wants right. to do that. So the, right, the, right. the class action sort of takes the place of a regulator in a lot of ways. Interesting. That's that, I like, I like how you frame that too. That's, that's, that's good. Yeah. All right. Now you, quickly, I just want to talk about, um, cause this is always important is what can the credit union do to make sure it's in compliance with ECOA uh, and the regulation First thing is know the law, be familiar with ECOA and Regulation B, and I'll talk about some resources for that. Um, make sure the compliance management system is sufficient. I know for a lot of smaller credit unions, if they even have somebody who's dedicated to consumer compliance, uh, that, that can be a stretch. And having somebody who would be dedicated to fair lending is just you know beyond... Uh, beyond comprehension. I mean, the staff is small and I understand that, but excuse me, it's very important to have some type of compliance management system in place so that somebody is looking at these functions within the credit union. Things that also apply to this are training. Those who are engaged in lending have to have training on a somewhat regular basis in fair lending, but not just those people. There have to be those who have play any role in the credit making and improving decision of the process, but also management because management has to be able to know that the CMS staff or the, and the, the credit staff, whoever the lending staff is, that they are also acting properly. So there has to be proper oversight within the credit union and you need to train the people who are responsible for the oversight. There also has to be oversight of third parties. You know, unfortunately, so many credit unions, oh no, not just credit unions, all the financial institutions use third-party systems for a lot of the lending process. Um, and for better or for worse, the, the creditor itself is responsible for the acts of the third party. So you have to have some ability to um, have oversight over the, indirect lenders or the vendors, whoever it may be. And again, I talked earlier about self-testing, you know, audits and self-testing are, are ways that you can accomplish that type of oversight as well. They, you, you can test to see if what's happening is in, in compliant with the requirements of the ECOA. And finally, in terms of resources on NCUA's website, there is a fair lending guide 
NCUA sends, sends out regulatory alerts and letters to credit unions. We talked about this, referred to some of them in, in this and the previous COA podcast. There's a reason that they do that. NCUA will only send out these letters or regulatory alerts if there's something significant that's taken place or will be taking place. So that's a clue right there that if it says compliance or deals with something in compliance and you are involved in compliance, you need to read it. That's because... a great point. That's a great point. It means something either happened that NCUA is seeing trends or irrespective of that, NCUA is going to start looking at something because a law changed or because they've decided to pocket a certain area of potential law. Exactly. And then finally, on the NCUA website, there is a what's called the financial, excuse me, Federal Consumer Financial Protection Guide, which is a collection of the exam procedures for all the different areas. And there is one for ACOA. So I would urge you to take a look at that because it has some helpful protections that can give you some guidance on, it'll tell you what the examiners are looking at when they go out in the field, the fair lending examiners, especially. And finally, I would rec recommend you take a look at the CFPB's website, consumerfinance.gov is the website, but find your way to the fair lending section because they have a number of fair lending resources, including those on ECOA. Fantastic, Joe. A lot, a lot, a lot to unpack here. A lot, a lot of good information for our listeners. And Joe, I want to thank you for being, for sharing your, your wisdom here with my listeners today. Good. Thanks for having me, Mark. You got it. And listeners, I want to thank you for listening. I hope you'll listen again soon. This is Mark Trichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktrichel.com.